Today on the podcast, the law firm that flew too close to the sun. We talk about the collapse of Dewey and LaBeouf, and for the first time since that collapse, we hear from the chair of the firm. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So today we're going to be talking about the dramatic implosion of one of the largest law firms in the world. And when I say dramatic, I don't mean really rapid. I mean, this story has elements of the best Greek tragedies, ambition, hubris, loyalty, or lack thereof. And in the end, a man haunted by what could have been. Sounds a little overwrought? Well, trust me, it's not. Tomorrow, August 3rd, Bloomberg Law is releasing a 20-minute documentary on the law firm Dewey and LaBeouf, its rise, its fall, and why other firms would be wise to treat it as a cautionary tale. The firm went under a decade ago, but its chairman, Steve Davis, has never talked to the press about what happened until now. Josh Block and Andrew Satter, the producers of the documentary, sat down with Davis for hours to go over what happened and what went wrong, and they join us on the podcast today to talk about what he said. I started off by asking Andrew about who Davis is and what got him started on this ill-fated path. Steve Davis is a Yale Law School grad. Uh, Immediately after graduating, he went to what was at the time um, kind of a mid-level, but uh, still very respectable and profitable energy and utilities firm in New York called LaBeouf Lamb. And he went there and rose through the ranks, started as associate, made partner, and eventually became chair of the firm. And he sort of was the driving force behind, um, along with many others, but he was kind of the the, the main force behind what would eventually become the mega firm, Dewey and LaBeouf. And since the firm, you know, the firm collapsed, and we'll get to that in all the gory details in a little bit, he hasn't really talked to anyone, um, but he talked to us. How did we get him to, to do this interview with us? Uh, Josh and I were talking. We always go over story ideas. And he said, you know what's coming up? The 10-year anniversary of um, the day that Dewey and LaBeouf went bankrupt. And we haven't heard from these guys. We should reach out to them and try to talk to them. So I, I read um, read about it. I was like, this is fascinating. And looked them up, You know, looked up some of the main players and sent out emails that I figured that would be the end of it. And I would go on and you know, they'll never respond to me. And um, much to my surprise, a few days later, I got one email back from Steve Davis, who was in, in London, who was living in London, and he said he would like to chat. You you were you were guessing at email addresses, right? Like we didn't even have really. So the way that I found him, I uh, had to I found a, um, a litigation finance firm that he's working for, and his name isn't even on the website. So I just kind of reverse engineered his email address based on other email addresses on the website and just put, you know, his name in in place of the addresses that were there and didn't know that it was even the right address. And I guessed right. Yeah. And here's a short clip from the documentary where you'll actually hear Davis's voice. I was going to say I haven't done anything like this in a long time, but I think the real answer is ever. (laughs) Well, and I think that the, the documentary does a good job at kind of taking you step by step showing how, you know, Davis's desire to make it into a mega firm was sort of the seeds of the downfall. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why did Davis want to make this not just a mid-sized firm, but a huge, huge firm? So uh, the firm was at a point where they were they were torn between two paths. Um, and it was either, you know, they were a very they were 
top players in their fields of energy and and insurance. And they were a place where they were they were conflicted out of deals. They couldn't get any bigger. They either needed to commit like we are a boutique or we're going bigger. And I think, you know, this is an ambitious guy. This is a guy who was like, you know, we're going to go that way. And I guess one point that I want to make is that he likes to say he really liked to manage by consensus. Yes, he had an opinion, but he was trying to bring other partners in and make sure they agreed. Yeah, he talks about like I don't want to I didn't want to have a partner vote because when we have partner votes, there are winners and there are losers and I don't want people to think that they've lost on this. I want to bring people around or go with something where we have a, a real consensus. And I, that was really it's an important point that he that he talks about in his management style. So Davis and the firm decided to go big, to get a lot bigger. And let's talk about how they decided to do that. You guys made a great um, metaphor in the in the documentary that it was like a sports team that decides to sign really big name free agents. Can you get into that a little bit about how LaBeouf, you know, went about getting really big? Yeah, so there's kind of two ways for a firm to really grow. Um, one is through lateral hiring. And so, you know, much like a baseball team, you know, if it wants to win the World Series, might go out and hire a couple star pitchers. A law firm is going to do the same thing. And so they're going to go out and try to poach the, you know, the, the best lawyers. So, so one of the first tests of this was a star litigator from Debevoise and Plimpton named Ralph Ferrara. And when they approached him, he kind of required a signing bonus of what ended up being $16 million. And here's another clip where you'll hear legal industry writers Vivia Chen and David Latt. When we all read about it, we our mouths were kind of hanging open, like, seriously? These are lawyers. They're not professional athletes. $16 million is a huge sum. So it was a huge sum of money, but um, and Davis, Davis and his team understood that, but they went for it anyway. Yeah, it's it's not it's not like it was just a really dumb decision. Like it worked until it didn't, right? Well, it, no, it, this really worked. I mean, one distinction is that he talked about like you can bring in laterals. You can bring in like when we bring in a lateral, like we really wanted to say we're bringing a superstar, a superstar who can pay off. If we have to pay if we have to pay him sixteen million, we want it. We want to bring in multiples of that, and that. In this instance, this worked. And frankly, you know, he was getting recognized as a guy uh, in the legal industry who could bring in these major players to his firm. And then, you know, this he was getting press for this. He was getting like people were saying, oh, this firm can do this and it's paying off for them. And it was now, you know, <laughs> until it didn't. Let's get to the merger, though. LaBeouf got pretty big through this uh, strategy of, of poaching other attorneys, but it wanted to get bigger. Uh, so it decided to merge with another firm. Can you guys get into that? Which which firm was it? Well, so it's it's it was Dewey Valentine, but I, I do think it's worth taking a step back on that. And one of the reasons, right? Davis got in trouble with some of his some of his partners. One in particular, they had conflict, and in part, Davis was worried that this guy was going to leave. And if this guy left, that would bring a that would lose he would lose a significant amount of revenue, um, and that wasn't all the impetus but that was part of the reason like how do i make sure if we leave if we lose this guy how do i make sure that we're bringing in people and bring in the right kind of people and bring in you know complementary practice areas there was a you know a feeling that if if LaBeouf lamb didn't merge um then it could implode so it was a pretty quick process ultimately it settled on uh, a conversation with a guy named morton pierce 
who was leading Dewey Ballantyne at the time. And, and now Dewey Ballantyne, you know, this was like, you know, the Yankees um, of the, you know, to, to, to stick with the, the sports metaphor. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's an app metaphor because the Dewey in Dewey Ballantyne is former governor of New York, Thomas Dewey, and also former presidential candidate. So like, this is a big, prestigious firm. Yeah, it was a really big firm. Um, and it, it was one of the best known, you know, um, Tony firms on Wall Street, kind of white shoe firms from, you know, the, from its founding in the 19, early 1900s. But uh, it had been it had fallen on a little bit of hard times. So it was still prestigious, but um, it kind of lacked it had the gravitas, but it lacked, um, it, you know, it, it, was, it, it lacked, lacked the, the money. money. Let's let's just let's just sort of call a spade a spade. It lacked the money. One common take on it was that Dewey married money and LaBeouf married up. So Davis and Morton Pierce talked, and I, I think it, it was you know only a couple of weeks, maybe six weeks or so, wow, really? that the deal came together. But it was a little bit of, a, of an awkward merger, as we saw. And now one of the things that we talked to Davis a lot about and that he kind of pushed back on is this idea that these firms were just wildly, you know, inappropriate or, or, or what you know wildly different you know they did their due diligence they the, McKenzie did a big study and found that you know actually like the billing rates were similar the lawyers all went to the same law schools so I mean it, it you know Davis made the point and you just made the point I think very effectively that it wasn't a boneheaded decision at the time you know it, it actually made a lot of sense uh, at the time but of course it didn't go well we wouldn't be here talking about it if it did go well let's get into why um, you know, a lot of people in the piece say it was because of timing. The first three quarters of 2008 for the new firm were actually quite good. The fourth quarter was uh, entirely different. Major practice areas in the firm came to a screeching halt. We're now down 43%. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Two-year no yields went from 190 to 166. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. But I get the sense it's a little more complicated than that. Can you get into, you know, was this just bad timing or, or was there other stuff going on? Well, I, the conventional wisdom around this that, that people at the time were reporting was that there were these guaranteed contracts, that the way that Davis had been so successful was he was bringing in these star partners, but not only was he bringing them in, he was promising them massive payouts and that they were they were going to you know make this much money for however long a period and you know davis disputes that so so conventional wisdom was that's what that's what was going to do it um but he says look most of these people most of these weren't guarantees i'll set that aside we can talk a little yeah, bit more about that sure but um but i think that it when it comes down to it the the two things really are the financial crisis and and this culture clash over how the firms were run. When these firms merge, they're not always equals. These firms were pretty close. They're very similar. And that actually caused more tension than a normal firm that is smaller and bigger. And we bring you into ours. Yeah, because it's worth noting that Davis in the, the piece mentions that, you know, oh, just the timing was so terrible. All of our clients were, you know, either going out of business or, or curtailing their activity. And that affected us. But there were a lot of other firms that, you know, were had this service the same clients and they didn't, you know, implode the way that that Dewey LaBeouf did. Right. Well, I think the the reason that the timing is such a big factor is they merge in 2007, October 2007, um, less than a year, almost exactly a year later, 
you know, the bottom falls out with the financial crisis. That's one year of good times for for a, a firm that is basically, you know, made out of made made out of scratch. Yeah, and like a so, Franken firm. Yeah, so they they just didn't have, um, you know, the the word that comes up a lot is the glue. Um, Davis himself likes to say, you know, there were there were no good times for the partners to like look back fondly upon. We hadn't built that loyalty and glue in the organization to keep people uh, together, to see their way through the hard times. Again, this is kind of where the conventional wisdom gets into, were there partners who had these guaranteed contracts and weren't taking deferred payments, and so causing the firm to, to you know, um, go into debt f- faster. Um, and, and that was one of the big, that was kind of one of the big contentions. Now, we sort of probed that with Davis, and what he would tell us is that because these weren't guaranteed contracts, it was really more the firm wanting to pay people to, to keep them because they knew that those were the people that were making money. But either way, there was still a lot of just animosity and disagreement around um, you know, who was getting paid, how they were getting paid, and a lot of mistrust. Um, things were getting leaked to the media all the time. Anybody who was covering it at the time, you know, all these sensational stories were coming out about you know, this partner or that partner. And so there's just created a very toxic environment. Josh, I want to hear your take on that, that, that um, you know, why didn't these attorneys who were poached and went over to Dewey LaBeouf and had guaranteed contracts, why didn't the firm come to them and say, hey, you know, we're in a global recession, we're in hard times, can we pay you off over a longer period of time or renegotiate? Did that happen? And if it didn't, why not? Yes, yeah, so it did. It did. Um, this goes back to this this glue notion, right, that they just weren't willing to say, I'll wait. You know, they weren't willing to say they just didn't feel that kind of faith in the firm. You know, why didn't this happen to another firm? It could have. I think there was the glue in these other firms. If you go back and look at the way the legal media covered this, they were saying, who's the next Dewey? Who's the next Dewey? Everybody thought more firms were going to go under, that there would be more Deweys. Um there was never anything quite the size of this firm that happened. It really, I don't think it was the guarantees. The guaranteed contracts were fewer than reported as per Davis. Um, and even if they weren't, he kind of doesn't care because he's like, I would have paid these guys anyway. The numbers he gives is he says, um, he says in a normal law firm, 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the partners. At our firm, we found that 50% of the revenue was coming from 5% of the partners. I couldn't as a firm, we couldn't lose that 5%. And the firms that had lost those kind of partners did go under. So it didn't really matter. If they wanted the money, I had to find the money to pay them or we're not going to be here anyway. And the fact that people weren't willing to do that and say, OK, you know, we'll we'll wait. So it's been 10 years. I mean, uh, I think it's a good time to revisit this now. But aside from the sort of, you know, 10 year anniversary, why are we talking about this now? Why, um, you know, why is this relevant to 2022? I can think of a few, a few reasons, but I'd like to hear from you. Well, why do you, why is this important now? Yeah. So I think a couple of things. One is that we, we just haven't heard from Stephen Davis. So nobody yeah. really ever heard his side. I think a lot of what he says are things that will be surprising to people because they will hear his side and, you know, what was in his view right and what was wrong. And and then I think the other thing is that everybody's always thinking, will this happen again? Can it happen again? How can it happen again? And a lot of these practices that Davis was using are still being used by a lot of firms. There are a lot of firms trying to attract. We do stories all the time about 
major partners getting huge paydays for leaving one firm for another, especially some of these firms that haven't lost people in in the past. Uh, you know, a Cravath, for example, um, when a partner leaves Cravath, you know, it's big news. And so people are starting to wonder, well, you know, can all these can can Kirkland sustain this many partners with these huge paychecks? No, I mean, that seemed to that really did seem to be one of the themes from your your documentary and also one of the themes that Davis himself kind of got across is like you can't look at this through the lens of hindsight. Like you have to think about it through the lens of what we were thinking about at the time. Right. Yeah. And that was really what we were most interested in hearing and why we spent so much time just, you know, hearing it from from Davis's perspective um, and just, you know, we did reach, I should note, we did reach out to uh, many of the other former partners and leaders. Um, some we didn't hear from, some just flatly turned us down or said, that, you know, they didn't want to revisit it because t- 10 years ago, but this was a very traumatic event for, for the people who lived it. And, you know, they still feel it very deeply. Speaking of that, let, let's end on Davis himself. Um I don't want to read too deeply into this. I was really reading between the lines when I was watching the documentary, but he seems like he's still kind of haunted by this. And, you know, a very, he seems still very, very affected to this day. I feel personally responsible. I feel uh, an immense uh, sense of really, uh, uh, that that I owe all these people an apology. Did you get that sense? Like, is, has he been able to move on um, both, you know, professionally, financially, uh, psychologically? I mean, he was he did not spend any time in jail, as far as I know, but he was charged with a crime and had to do a, you know, one of those perp walks with handcuffs. Like, where's he at now in 2022? Yeah, um, I think he's still... You can you can tell from from talking to, to Davis that this still affects him greatly. Him and, and some of the other leaders were indicted on fraud charges uh, by District Attorney at the time, Cy Vance. The the trial stretched on for years and really took a toll on him and and others. Um, he was ultimately given a deferred prosecution deal, which um, actually which finally ended in, in 2021, which is why he was sort of ready to talk about this because. He was sort of free and clear of any of the obligations that he had under the deferred prosecution um, uh, bar, uh, deal that he had. But, um, you know, I think he's I think, you know, he's, he's you can tell he's sort of a, a deep thinker and um, just was st- still processing this today. And I, th- I think maybe one of the reasons that he agreed to do the interview was, you know, just talking about it to to a, a journalist is is sort of you know part of the therapy and part of the process of of processing you think it was uh, kind of to him. it was kind of cathartic for him i think so yeah what do you think well i, I think that's right I, I also think it's you know in that in that tom wolf novel bonfire of the vanities they talk about you know the masters of the universe yeah, right yeah. like this is a guy who was a master of the universe and, and he's not anymore you know he lives in london uh he doesn't practice law anymore and there were a lot of people that were impacted by the collapse of Dewey, associates, staff. But, you know, for the most part, who wasn't impacted? The majority of the partners who all landed at other firms and can picked up. And you can look up every one of these guys and see where they are now and how they have thriving practices at other firms and really came out, you know, 
okay. And here's one partner, and, and he's the only partner. The other leaders who were indicted were not partners. He's the only one who was a partner because it was this, like I say, the C-suite management style. He's the only partner who who's in a very different spot today um, than he was when this when this went down. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you see it and I think you see it in the piece. You know, his voice quivers a couple of times. You see that you see it. You know, he feels responsible. Those were the voices of Josh Block and Andrew Satter talking about the rise and fall of Dewey and LaBeouf. You can see the full 20-minute version of the documentary starting on August 3rd at BloombergLaw.com. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor today was Greg Henderson. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at B-Law. That's B as in Big Law. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you later this month. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change air pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species. It's a lot. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join us on the Parts Per Billion podcast every other Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Bloomberg Law's Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.